Good evening. I'd like to welcome you to our study tonight. And uh, we're going to look at part two of the section on dealing with anger. So we're in Matthew chapter 5 tonight, looking at verses 21 through 26 together. And we are applying Christ's teaching on anger. Let's go ahead and bow together for a word of prayer. And then we will dig into this passage uh, with a little bit of review from last week. Father, we're so grateful for your word and how it has the power not only to instruct us and uh, to call us to attention, but it also has the power to change us. And I pray that this evening as we open up the word of God, as we think about what you say about this issue of anger and what is ultimately at the root of it and how this root problem expresses itself in so many ways, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, help us to have tender hearts that we would submit to the word of God and that you would really work in our hearts and lives. And uh, bless our time of prayer together. And uh, we pray that as we get ready for our cantata on Sunday, that we would have uh, just a wonderful group of uh, folks out for church on Sunday morning. I pray that as the uh, choir sings and as the different groups sing and as um, as uh, the folks who are a part of the cantata uh, present the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist, I pray that you would use those things to help us to understand the significance of the birth of Christ. And I pray that the gospel would be given with great clarity. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26 is where we are tonight. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26 And here's what the text says. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar. Go thy way first, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Now the passage in front of us is a part of a new section of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember back, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is talking about the character of a disciple. And so we have the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are the merciful, blessed are they who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, theirs is the kingdom. Those those statements are all dealing with the character of a disciple. Now what we're doing is we're transitioning from that discussion into a second part. And the verses leading up to this were kind of that transitional period. Now we're talking about a proper use of the law. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that transitional period between the first part of the, the sermon and the second part of the sermon. Well, this is going to be the first section that's dealing with a very specific use or application of the law. And when Jesus is talking about this, 
I would have to assume that he is not just telling us how to use the law, but he's also, he's addressing some common problems in the use of the law that are around him. And so I'll remind you again of the facts that we talked about last time. The first fact we saw last week was that we need to apply the law correctly by starting with the right standard. It does not matter where the culture draws the line. Now, when I say it doesn't matter, I don't mean that it doesn't matter at all, but it has no bearing on whether or not it's right or wrong. In other words, God doesn't determine right and wrong based upon popular opinion. He doesn't do an opinion poll and then say, okay, now we know that the times have changed and people's viewpoints have changed, so this is now right, even though it used to be wrong. God could care less what you think about that, okay? He's the standard. And his character is the standard because he is the source of everything. And then the third thing we saw last week was that he sees the whole picture. And so it's not just what we do, but it's also why we do it. He's looking at what is below the surface, not just the action. He's not just saying, well, this is bad because this outcome is severe, this is not bad because the outcome is not severe. When, he, when we talk about the difference between murder and the difference between anger, there's no question, I would rather someone hate me than hate me so much they kill me, okay? There's no question about that because if I'm dead, I'm dead, all right? Or when we talk about the difference between lust in the heart and someone committing adultery, there's, there's absolutely no question that the, the physical consequences of someone committing adultery are far more severe than that of having lust in the heart. But what Jesus is saying is this, listen, we look at the ultimate end and we determine how bad it is based on the consequence. And I tell you that I look at the heart. So whether it's ever expressed, whether it's ever seen, whether it's ever known, it's still sin. It's still serious. It's still an offense to my righteous character. That is the sense of these, these laws in front of us. The second fact we saw last week is that disobedience can take a lot of different forms. So the first is this, we may miss the fundamental underlying principle. And I, I took three cases last week. I'm not gonna go back and review those, but those three cases were basically giving the same basic principle on the bottom but they were applying in different contexts in different ways. The second thing we saw is that we might create a clever loophole. And in Matthew 15 verses 1 to 9, he talks about the person who doesn't want to honor their parents with uh, the material possessions that they have when they're elderly. And so they create a loophole so that they can get around it. And he says that you make void the law of God by your traditions. And then the third is we might add to what God has said. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we see some examples of people forbidding marriage, forbidding meat, okay? Just two examples that he gives. But there are lots and lots of different ways that we might take what God says and we say, well, you know, I want to add to it a little bit and let's make it a little more stringent than what he said. So those were the, the, the focus, that was the focus of what we talked about last week. Now I'd like us to get into fact number three. We have to be specific with the applications of the passage. Now look down in your Bible at verses 21 and 22 and let's read it carefully and then let's examine some of these details one at a time. He says, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. Now, he could be saying 
that you have heard them read the law, but they never expounded the law. That may be what he's saying. And that, that is a completely valid possibility. He may also be saying, not just you've heard it, but it's never been explained, but the way that you've heard it being explained when it's read is giving some people an out that is not appropriate or the application of the law that's being written or being read, that application falls short of what God's original intent was. So you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Now, is Jesus suggesting Is he suggesting that this is a new law and this is a law that was not in the Old Testament? This was not an expectation in the Old Testament, but now I'm making it an expectation? Is that what he's saying? I would say that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you need to be more specific in how you apply these laws. In other words, it's not just this one scenario. Okay, if a person commits murder... He's saying there is something that underlies that murder. And so there are a lot of different places we could go and to apply this principle that undergirds it. That's what he's saying. So detail number one. Obedience starts with valuing people the same way that God values people. And the question is, where does a person's value come from? Does it come from how much money they make? Does it come from how they look? By the way, how much money you make changes over the course of your life? Some people are very wealthy for a while and then they, they go through financial hardships and wealthy people die poor. Sometimes that happens, okay? Uh, sometimes a person is strong and vibrant and physically attractive and then they're hit with a terrible physical infirmity and they become bedridden. Do, do they no longer have value when that happens? Well, the answer is of course not. So what is it that gives a person value? And the answer is created in the image of God. God created us in his image with a very distinct purpose and that is where our value comes from. It starts with God. And there's a reason that in our society people struggle with whether or not they have value. Someone doesn't believe that they were created by God, designed by God, they have a purpose that God has given them. Well, it would make complete sense that they would struggle with whether or not they have value. And so these verses start with the fact that people have value to God. And we need to value them in the same way that God values them. So God is good and humans were created in his image. And he has given them an inherent victor, uh, value and dignity. So in these verses we're going to see several different ways. Where he's going to express that concept. For instance in verse 21. He's going to tell us that valuing people the way that God values them. It doesn't start with our actions and it doesn't start with our words and it doesn't start with the sentiment. It starts with what's going on inside of us, our hearts. So he says, whosoever is angry with his brother, and by the way, there's a a little statement there, without a cause. That's actually important. Anger is not always sinful. Now, it is hard for us sometimes to judge anger. And, I'm, and if we were to look at the example of David, he talks about how he has 
a righteous indignation in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. Why does he do that? Well, because he's just stated that he is angry with the wicked. And it it would appear that David's anger is actually justifiable and it's a righteous anger, but he understands, he says, try the ways of my heart. In other words, there's a lot going on internally. I may actually, in some ways, be justified in what I am thinking here, and in other ways, I'm not. And so he's saying, God, bring out the dross and help me to think correctly about this. But that little phrase is important. I'm going to come back to it another time. But he says, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause. The idea is that value is something that starts inside of us. I could, I could not value a person and never tell them that. And never do something insulting or hurtful to them. But in my heart, I have disdain for them. It's, it's very easy. Now, it is also true that if I rub shoulders with a person I have disdain for, I'll probably eventually start showing that, okay? You'll start noticing it in body language. You'll notice it in the things that we say. You'll notice it in responses when things aren't going my way. You'll see how that goes. But if this is a person you don't spend a lot of time with, you don't rub shoulders with often, you could harbor in your heart a disdain for them and nobody ever know it. Secondly, valuing people is more than just sentiment. And what I mean by sentiment is, This just sentimental feeling like, oh, I have this affection for somebody. I have this warmth in my soul for them. It's more than that. He says, but I say unto you. And then he gives all these other examples of how a person could be in violation of this command. And they're not just he's angry with somebody. And they're not just he's murdered somebody. These are other ways that a person can express the anger in their heart. You say, well, what are some of those areas? One more thing I want to say before we get there. Not only does valuing people start in the heart, and not only is valuing people more than just sentimentality, but valuing people is not selective. In other words, some people are really good at favoring one person and just disdaining another. It's very easy. We think about James, what, he does, what does he talk about? He talks about partiality. He says if somebody comes into the congregation and this person is dressed very nicely and you say to this person over here, hey, come, come sit, hey, move over. You need, to, you need to move out of that spot. This person needs to come and sit here. And you say, well, why did you tell this person to sit in a position of honor and push this person to the side? It's called favoritism. It's called partiality. And there's all different kinds of ways that a person could, could do this. They could do it because uh, of a person's cultural background, their, mo- their, their money, uh, their personality. There's all kinds of different ways that a person may favor one person over another. But notice the kinds of people he mentions here. He talks about people who are brothers. And he's not just talking about like biological family siblings. But he's talking about it in the context of the congregation. So these are Brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, believers. People who think, who we think are fools. (laughs) And we express that we think they're fools. People who hold grudges against us. People who are adversarial toward us. Now, by the way, that, that, that statement, your adversary is being qualified. And I want to mention that a little bit later. 
This is not somebody who's trying to murder you, okay? This is not, this is not like your next door neighbor is plotting your demise and they're trying to kill you. He's like, oh, go agree with them and, and find a middle ground. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a person that you owe a legitimate debt to and you're unwilling to pay that debt and they're hounding you about it and they've gotten tired of hounding you about it and they're like, all right, you know what? We're gonna go to court about this and I'm gonna make the law come down on you and you're gonna be forced to pay me and because you've given me grief all this time, you're gonna pay every single last penny. That's what he means by an adversary. But the truth is, these are, these are all people that it's very easy for us to have animosity towards them. It's very easy for us to have anger towards them. Someone who maybe they really are foolish in the way that they act. Maybe a person who has a grudge that there may be some basis for it, but it's overblown. I mean, we've never done that before, right? <laughs> Hold a grudge against somebody. It's a little overblown. No. Valuing people cannot be selective. Next, valuing people involves being restrained. And by the way, when we talk about anger, you know what anger, anger really is, it's the loss of control, <laughs> okay? So things don't work out the way that I want them to. Somebody didn't treat me the way that I wanted them to. And rather than me being controlled and I say, you know what, God, this is your situation. You deal with this. You see what I'm, you see what I'm dealing with. This is an unjustifiable situation. And I'm asking you to go to bat for me and to, to, to protect me and do those things. Instead, I'm boiling anger and I want to take, take over the situation and I want to take matters into my own hands. And so, you know, he talks about a person who is angry. He says that we're supposed to give place under wrath. And he says, vengeance is mine, our pay, saith the Lord. God has ways of dealing with people who have done wrong to others. And we have to learn to be restrained and to trust God to do it in his time. And he, he has his ways. His ways are far cleaner than our ways. So, valuing people, restraint. Here are a couple of examples. The first one is this. Resisting the temptation to insult someone's value. Now in verse 22 he says, Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka. You say, well what is that? That's not an English term, is it? No. It's a term that has the idea of, you are empty-headed. You are worthless. Okay? That's the idea. So it's a person who is insulting another person by demeaning their value. Did you catch that? All right? They're saying you don't have value. You're not smart. You're not intelligent. You're not worth my time. That's the kind of insult that he's talking about. So rather than the person being restrained... They look at the situation and what's going on. They're angry and the way that they respond explosively in anger is they demean the person's value. Now, when you demean a person's value, who you're ultimately demeaning? Well, their creator. God made them. And so ultimately that demeaning of that individual is not just against them, it's against God himself. There's a second way. We need to resist the temptation to insult a person's character. In verse 22 he says, Whosoever shall say, thou fool. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that there will be some qualification here. There are clearly places in the Bible that people are called fools. Okay, either as a category. In fact, Jesus in places called people fools. All right. 
So we know that there could be some scenarios where it would be appropriate to use that identification. But in the context here, we have a person who is not in a, in a measured way saying, this is the character of a fool. What they're actually doing is they're exploding in anger and they're just lashing out and they're saying, you have no character. So demeaning of someone's value, demeaning of someone's character. An explosive anger. It's really easy to do that. It's easy to do that when we've been bothered by something a person's doing for a while. It's easy to do that, especially with those who we live closest to. Because the friction is constantly going. You know, siblings are constantly, they're, they're, they're living in the same house. They're always going through different challenges. And so the friction, it's really easy for it to be between a husband and wife. Between siblings, between parents and their kids, kids and their parents. And so he says, resist that temptation. A third one, resist the temptation to refuse to address ways that we've been wronged. Now, verse 23 is an interesting one. He says, rememberest, if you, in, in, in the context, he says, you're, you're giving, your altar, you're giving your, your, your sacrifice at the altar, your offering. And as you're getting ready to give this offering in the temple, Something pops into your head. Hey, there's somebody that has an issue with you. Now, now please understand something. When he talks about somebody having an issue, issue with you, this is not an unqualified scenario. Like, anybody that doesn't like me, I have to go and I have to do whatever they want. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about a situation where there is a justifiable cause. You have wronged a person. And they're bothered because you have wronged them and you've been unwilling to go and to address the issue. And it's an issue that can be resolved. Not every issue can be resolved. You know, one of the things that sometimes we struggle with is um, there are some situations we go to try to resolve them and we've, we really go in, in, in the right way and we try to resolve the issue and the person just blows us off. Well, guess what? Now they're in that position, not us. They're in that position. But he says, you have this person who has ought against you, and you're giving your offering, he says, leave it there, go and resolve the issue with your brother, and then come back and give your offering. You know what that tells us? That tells us that God doesn't really want our stuff. He wants our heart to be in the right place. He wants us to resolve our issues with people. And so, one of the ways that people have to learn to be restrained is when they've wronged a person, instead of walking away and ignoring the problem and being unwilling to address it and being unwilling to confess and say, I was wrong, would you forgive me? Let's try to resolve this issue. Instead, they walk away. He says, no, no, no. That's not how the Christian's supposed to respond. That is really one of the ways that we harbor anger in our hearts. Verse 23. And then the fourth reason is resisting the temptation to demand our rights without any flexibility. In verse 20, 25, he says, agree with thine adversary quickly. And if you remember back in the context, he says that at the end, if you don't do that, you're going to go to the judge and you're going to be thrown in the prison and then you're going to pay every single penny. You know what that tells me? That tells me that in the illustration that Jesus is using, this isn't just somebody that has ill intention towards you. This is someone 
who, if they go to court, you really are in the wrong, okay? You're in the wrong. They're going to enforce. You have to pay back what you owe. And this person is an adversary because they've been coming after you. And they say, hey, you owe this debt. You need to pay it. You owe this debt. You need to pay it. You owe this debt. You need to pay it. And you just keep pushing them off, pushing them off, pushing them off. And they finally say, okay, no worries. I'll make sure that somebody else hounds you about this debt who has the authority to do it. He's saying in a situation like that, be flexible. Go to the person. Resolve the issue. Find a way. He's not just being pragmatic. He's saying that's the right thing to do. So all of these are different areas where we can be restrained. And part of that restrained response is showing value. uh, Showing that we surely see the value of that person. The second detail is that obedience does not create excuses. Now the first detail was that obedience starts with valuing people the same way that God values them. Detail number two, obedience does not create excuses. You know, it'd be easy for us to say, well, you know, nobody was physically harmed. Yeah, I exploded. Yeah, I said terrible things. Yeah, I was angry. Yeah, I threw something. But thankfully they didn't get hurt, so I'm good. (laughs) Whoa, 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 whoa. It's not just the fact that nobody was physically hurt. The anger in the heart has to be addressed. Some of them might say, well, it was just words. Remember the little, little statement kids used to say when they were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Uh, that's not true, by the way. It's not true at all. I mean, a person that you respect who says something harsh and cruel and demeaning to you, you won't forget it. You just don't forget it. it it's something that will nag at you. You say, is that true about me? Do they really feel that way about me? Am I really that worthless? Like These are the things that, that come into our minds. And we may have a hard time pushing that to, to the side. Maybe somebody brings a, an unjust criticism. I remember one time when I was in college, I was a floor leader. It was a horrible position to be in at Christian college. You know, you had to write up people when they violated the, these arbitrary, very strict rules sometimes. And, I, and sometimes in my mind, I was, like, I was like, should I write them up or not? And I was always in conflict about these things, okay? And I remember one time there was a situation where there was a young man who sat next to me in chapel and he was just like, boom, he was sleeping and he didn't care. It was like, I'm, I'm out. And after the, after, the, after the chapel service, I... To the best, the best way I knew how, and maybe if I looked at it now and I could see myself in the situation, I would, I would view it differently. But I was like, hey, you, you really need to, you need to try to stay awake in chapel. And I, would, you know, and I didn't want to really like push the issue too much, but he's like, ah, whatever, whatever, I don't care. And then this person, not, I don't know who it was, somebody wrote this long dissertation to me. And it was anonymous. And I remember reading it and I was like, did I really do that? Is that true? And you know, you go through every single piece and you just pick it apart. Words do hurt people. They do. They stick with us. And the fact is, for us to just say, well, it's just words, it's not true. Our words really, really matter. Especially, especially with our spouse, our kids, people that work under us. Our words really, really matter. I said it, but I didn't mean it. I didn't act on it. Well, Your words matter. It's true, kind of. (laughs) It's mostly true. It's partially true. The idea is it's easy for us to excuse our anger and our responses. 
Detail number three. Obedience does not allow life and time to create the illusion that it is fine to ignore unresolved matters. Now, I've heard the statement stated that time heals all wounds. Anybody ever heard that before? That's not true. That is not true. It's absolutely not true. In fact, sometimes time actually makes wounds become deeper. Now, it is true that there are some times that time goes by and the person on both sides of a conflict, they start you know, thinking like, hey, you know, maybe I should really go and talk to this person. It's been a really long time. What, what, I, what I said to them was very petty. I should just admit it. I should just make it right. And it is true that sometimes on both sides of a conflict, people will come to that conclusion. And the amount of time that goes by finally gets them to the point where they humble themselves, they swallow their pride, and they say what they need to say, and they resolve the issue. And then 10 years later, after having lost 10, 10, 10 years of family life, you know, because of all their conflicts with one another, they're like, man, I guess it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. That, that is true. That happens. But what's also true is that when you've forgotten a wrong that you've done to others, they may not have forgotten. <laughs> they may not have forgotten. Many times, very common, you will deal with a situation with an adult. Somebody that's 40, 50, 60 years old. And what you will discover is that that problem that they're dealing with right now as a 50-year-old, it actually started when they were five or eight. It's true. And, 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 and an issue happened and it was never resolved. And over the course of their life, how they responded to that hurt has affected relationships their entire life. It's very common. And so... Obedience doesn't say, well, enough time's gone by. I don't need to worry about this. I don't need to address it. I'll just leave it alone. Verses 23 and 24, he says this. If thou bring thy gift to the altar and there remember. Did you hear that word? Remember that thy brother hath ought against thee. Why does he use the word remember? Because you forgot about it. <laughs> it's not been on your mind for a while. You don't even care about it. You've moved on. And by the way, when you go and have a conversation with somebody who you've had an issue with in the past, sometimes when you bring that issue up to them, they're like, ah, man, I don't even remember that issue. And that's great. Sometimes they can remember every detail of it. The fact is you really don't know until you have the conversation. You clear the error. So sometimes we forget, and, it's, and, and the reason we forget is because rather than addressing things, we push it off, we push it off, we push it off, we push it off, we get busy in life, and then in the busyness of life, it's forgotten in our life, but not in theirs. And by the way, if somebody's holding on to a grievance and bitterness is in their heart, that's sin, okay? That is clearly sin. But the fact that a person is sinning in bitterness doesn't mean that we have the right to not go and make an issue right with them. The second thing, sometimes we drag our feet. Verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into the prison. Now this example is obviously, I've already kind of alluded to what it is. You have a person that they owe a debt. 
there's been a lot of back and forth. They need to pay it. They need to pay part. In fact, sometimes when, when someone owes a debt and you say, this is what I can afford right now, they'll say, I'll accept that, but you need to catch up. You know, there's different ways that these things will be handled. But in the way that, that he gives the illustration, it's as if the problem is not that you owe the debt. And the problem is not that they haven't asked you. The problem is that they've given you opportunity to resolve it, but you're not willing. You're dragging your feet. You're not willing to address the issue. And so obedience does not allow life to create the illusion that it's okay to ignore unresolved issues. Now, what I'm saying, I hope that we don't all sit here going, I got to go confess to my first grade teacher that I stole an eraser and I got to look them up and figure out where they are. And I'm not talking about that. Okay, please don't do that. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not being silly, actually. That is sometimes the way people will be about this. But there's an issue that you know is between you and another person. And you say, well, how do I know that? Well, if they walked in the room right now, would you get all tense and start breathing heavy? might be something unresolved between you (laughs) that's very possible right or if you're walking down the grocery store aisle and they happen to notice you coming down there would they walk away to another part of the store (laughs) it's an indication maybe something's between you and we're not talking about a situation where you've actually tried to resolve the issue and I'm about I'm going to come to this in just a second but you've made no effort That's a problem. That's a huge problem. The third thing I want to mention here is that sometimes we have unrealistic expectations. We can't resolve everything. I wish that we could, but we can't. Okay? Romans chapter 12 verse 18 says this, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Let me read that again and don't miss the details. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. First thing I'll say is this. You cannot live peaceably with everybody. You can't. There's a reason we have a military in our country, okay? Because we have adversarial nations. If we decided, well, we're just going to get rid of our military because if we'd be good to everybody, they'd be good back to us. Guess what? Our national sovereignty would be in trouble, okay, immediately. We have to have law enforcement. We absolutely do. We have to have people who will stand up and be strong in situations. You cannot resolve every issue. But as much as it lies in you, as much as you are responsible, you need to do it. So there are times that we may go to a person and say, hey, you know what, I was wrong here and I would like to make it right. And they say, you were wrong and I have no desire to make it right. Should I walk away from that situation feeling guilty that we haven't resolved the issue? The answer is no, you shouldn't. (laughs) I know that sounds a little cavalier, but it's true. If you've really attempted to resolve the issue and you've done it in a biblical manner, And the person is cold and callous and has no desire to resolve the issue with you. There's nothing you can do. You can pray for them. You can be burdened for them. You can desire that God would soften their heart. But you are not responsible to make that happen. 
And so the idea is this. Where we are responsible, where we have obligation, where we have wronged, we need to go and attempt to resolve the matter. What is it that causes a person to swallow their pride and say, I was wrong? I mean, there's a lot of different things that could be, but in this context, it is you value that person. It's really what it is. You know, when I've wronged my wife or she's wronged me and I go to her and I say, what I said was wrong. Will you forgive me? What am I saying? I value you. I value our relationship. I value that we have a restored and sweet fellowship with one another. That's what I'm saying. And when I say, I'm not addressing that issue. I've got nothing to say to you about this. You know what I'm saying? Don't value our relationship. I don't value you as a person. That is a devastating thing to communicate with our unwillingness to resolve issues. Detail number four. Obedience does not add to what God says. Now, I just, I want to mention a couple of these things. This is not a part of the text. You're saying, wow, you're not adding and now you're talking about things. This seems like you're in a little bit of a dissonance here, right? But the reason I'm addressing this is, is to help us to understand that there are places where a person does take the life of another individual and God does not call it murder. He does not view it as someone taking a life out of malice. And there are situations that a person may find themselves in that when they read a verse like this, it says, thou shalt not kill. In the back of their mind, they go, but I've been in a battle. I've taken a life. Have I violated this commandment? Someone broke into my house and I had to defend myself. And sadly, a person died. There are situations I'm driving my car and someone was, uh, you know, ran a red light. And after that accident, I survived and they didn't. I wasn't even in the wrong. But that life is gone. And I feel the weight of that. I mean, there are all kinds of situations that people can find themselves in. They could be working on a job. And an accident happens. And it's something that, that they had no control over. Or maybe they made a mistake. Because of the mistake that they made, someone's life is affected and families are affected. How do we think about some of those things? I just want to mention this kind of briefly. Tragic accidents can haunt a person but should not be viewed the same way as murder. In, in Numbers 35.11, he says, You shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge, that the slayer may flee thither, which killed any person at unawares. In the Jewish system, there were certain cities where if a person had injured a person, and it was, an, it was accidental, it was, not, it was not intended, okay? That family whose family member had died, they wanted blood, okay? But the law did not allow it. Guess what? There was a city where they could go and live and they could be safe. And God created that because he knows in a fallen world, there'll be times that things like this can happen. Or someone who is defending themselves in a necessary scenario and tragically it results in a person's death. Exodus 22 two. Listen to this one. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. Luke 22.36 Then said he unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. He that hath no sword, let him sell his sword and buy one. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that people sometimes have to defend themselves. And this isn't something that we find often. It's not something that we, 
want to be in a scenario like that, but the fact is it can happen. Sometimes people will be haunted by the carnage of war. Yet in Psalm 18, David says, It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon high places. He teacheth my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. The fact is we need people in the military. We need people who are willing to not only lay their life down potentially, but to take the life of someone who is trying to destroy this nation. And, and these, are, these are terrible realities that are a part of living in a fallen world and not in any way in violation of this command in front of us. Sometimes people feel that capital punishment is too harsh or unjustifiable. Yet Numbers 35.30 says, Whoso killeth any person, the murderer, shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. One witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. The idea is that there has to be clearly a provable situation. Not my word against your word or your word against my word. But there are real witnesses that have verified this has happened. A person in cold blood has killed another person. That was a capital offense. In Romans 13, 4, he says, He is the minister of God to thee for good. This is talking about the human government. If thou do that which is evil, be afraid. He beareth not the sword in vain. He is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Last thing I'm going to mention this. Sometimes anger is justifiable. And the appropriate response, considering all the circumstances, is anger. Notice the statement, without a cause. If you read through the Bible very carefully, you will see that anger is, is, is clearly condemned in most situations when it comes to people's interaction with one another. Yet there are also clear examples where it is not condemned. But in fact, it is actually expected. There are certain situations where you'd say the only right way for a person to righteously respond is to say that's evil and I will do whatever I can in my power to stand against it. And so in, in Ephesians 4.26 he says, be angry and sin not. He doesn't say stop being angry, it's sinful. <laughs> he says be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Psalm 139, verse 19. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take his name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Say, whoa, that's a little. And then this is what he says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know what David is expressing? He's saying, when I see evil, my heart boils in anger against it. God, if there is a part of that anger that is unrighteous, show me because I don't want to have an unrighteous anger. That's what David's saying. And so that shows us that there are times that that would be the appropriate response. And then 2 Corinthians 7, 9. He says, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were not, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Behold, the self same thing, you sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you, 
What clearing of yourself, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge. In all things, ye have approved yourself to be clear in this matter. You know what he's saying? He's saying that when a person has sinned, and it's serious, and it's known. And in this situation, this is a person who I believe was under church discipline. He's telling the church, look, this person... The way they view their sin now is totally different. They don't see it as something that's excusable. Something to be gloried in. They hate it. They're grieved by it. They're willing to take real accountability for their actions. They actually want to put to death that sinful passion. And they want to replace it with godly passions. And so in that situation, obviously, there should be an animosity towards sin in our own hearts. And so we see an example of how anger can be godly in the, towards, the anger that, uh, towards the sin even within our own hearts. So you say, well, what, how would you kind of conclude? How do you pull this all together? Let me give you some final thoughts. First of all, obviously God wants us to value other people. And he wants us to value them like he values them. We look at somebody that's rubbed us the wrong way, done something hurtful. We need to see them the way that God sees them. It doesn't mean that we love their actions. It doesn't mean that we give in to evil. But we don't have personal animosity towards them as a human. We actually care about their soul. There's a compassion. There's a desire that that person would be in the right place. That's very important. God can be angry with our sin, yet still show compassion on us. And extend grace to us. And he can still love us. Even in that position. And and to the best of our ability. We have to learn to imitate God in these areas. This is why he gave us the law. That said thou shalt not kill. So we would understand how serious it is. It's why he warns us that our attitude and words matter. It's why he created human government to protect citizens. And establish justice and order in society. This is why we need law enforcement. A justice system. A military. And so the encouragement is, may God help us to value human life and love those who are created in his image. And obviously that starts right here. In our homes, with our spouse, with our kids, with our siblings. That's where it starts. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray that you'll take the word of God and use it to help us tonight. Every single one of us obviously struggles with sin and temptation. There are people that have wronged us and it has grieved us severely. And I pray that if those people would ever be repentant and come to us to resolve a matter, that we would indeed forgive them. And to the extent that it is appropriate, there would be a restoration. And Father, I pray that if we have wronged others and we know it and we're unwilling to address it, you'd humble our hearts and help us to turn from the pride that keeps us from addressing these issues and help us to come to you and then to go to them. Father, help us to honor you in these areas. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.